Bow your heads with me. Lord Jesus, take these moments now as we come to your word. Take my lips, Lord, and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our wills and bend them to your own. And take our hearts, Lord Jesus, and set them on fire with love for yourself. We pray this for your name's sake. Amen. Well, you may be seated. We're closing out our series, What on Earth Am I Here For? And uh, wonderfully, as we close this out, we're talking about getting committed and connected. I'll mention this again, but over the last six weeks, we've had close to 500 men and women involved in small groups around the various neighborhoods that our church services, Christchurch people, maybe some friends as well. And we're going to be talking again about the need for you to get connected. And if you're not in such a group, we are going to continue to encourage, as we are the present groups, to continue, as I know mine is going to do. So that's part of as we close this time together around this series, the key encouragement that we're going to be speaking to you about. Now, if you turn to page 6 in your service sheets, or to Acts chapter 2 in your Bibles, we will draw your attention to the scriptures at which we are looking. But when you ask the question, what on earth am I here for? And I hope you all have given out the little booklet this week that we presented to you last week. We've ordered more in. We actually ran out of them. So somewhere around Pittsburgh, I trust, are 1,200 little booklets in somebody else's hand asking, what on earth am I here for? And getting the answer. I know my wife and I have given something like two or three of those out just by ourselves. Billy Graham was being honored in the year 2000 down in Charlotte, North Carolina, which is quite close to his home in the North Carolina mountains. It's really the home and chief office nowadays of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, as well as also the work of Samaritan's Purse. But that year, 2000, Billy Graham, the older gentleman, wanted nothing to do with being honored by the city, but they coaxed him out, and 2,000 businessmen and women honored him at a luncheon. And they said, look, you won't have to give any major speech. We want to honor you. Just say a few words. Well, after they had said all their grand and noble things about Billy Graham... He was invited to the podium, and he said, this week, it was the year 2000, whatever week that was, Albert Einstein, the famous physicist, was honored on the front of Time magazine as the man of the century. But Graham went on to say, I happen to know that he was traveling on a train back up to Princeton, from where he lived to Princeton, where he taught. 
and the chap who walked through the trains clipping the tickets, I think they named them as clippies, came to uh, Professor Einstein and he couldn't find his ticket. So he's going through all his pockets, he looks around, and the conductor said to him, uh, Dr. Einstein, we know who you are. We know you bought a ticket, don't worry about it. And he went on walking back, did the conductor, clipping more tickets. As he got to the back of that particular cabin, he turned around and he saw Dr. Einstein on his knees, looking under the seat, still trying to find his ticket. And the clippy went back down the, uh, the aisle and said to him, Dr. Einstein, Dr. Einstein. He said, we know who you are. We know who you are. We know you bought a ticket. Don't worry. To which Dr. Einstein said, I know who I am. I'm trying to find out where I'm going. <laughs> what on earth am I here for? to help people know that they can be on their way to heaven. And Billy Graham actually went on to say, this is a new suit I'm wearing. He said, my family has been telling me I'm looking grubbier and grubbier, and I need to get a new, sh new suit. So I bought a new suit for this occasion. He said, the next time I'm going to wear this suit will be when they bury me. And he said, and when they do, he said... I know where I'm going. I know who I am, and I know where I'm going. And that's the thrust of the ministry of the church at large, as per the Salvation Army, to help people know that they are on their way to heaven, not on their way to hell. Now, when you come to this passage, it's the first sermon of the new, newly born church on the day of Pentecost. And as Peter preaches, he addresses amazingly the three parts of the human personality which make up who we are as we live out our lives in these bodies that God has given to us. Namely, a mind with which we think wills with which we choose, and emotions with which we feel. And it's some combination of those, and presumably when it comes to an all-out commitment, all of those that get surrendered to our Lord Jesus Christ. Look with me then at what we are reading together. Acts chapter 2, verse 36 and here Paul, Peter, who's preaching, says this, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord, not Caesar, and Christ, that is, Messiah. Now, if you had your own Bible, you could certainly underline the service sheet. When he says there that we know assuredly, that's the King James Version, let all Israel be assured of this. That is, to know assuredly. The New English Bible says, accept 
as certain. The J.B. Phillips translation says, beyond a shadow of a doubt. And what he is addressing is the intellectual assurance that Jesus, who they crucified, walked from the grave alive. And that little young band of believers, baptized in the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and became living witnesses, went out and preached with that intellectual assurance, not just an emotional confidence. They knew Jesus was alive. They had seen Jesus. He had borne witness. And in his resurrection, with overwhelming evidences, which we don't have time to look at this morning, but overwhelming evidences presented himself to them. And at one point, 500 people all at one time as alive, therefore giving credence and credibility to what happened on the cross. That Jesus, in dying on the cross, had indeed paid for all our sins, had indeed borne hell for us so that we don't have to go there, and was alive again to come and dwell in us and make us a new creation. So Peter, in preaching, said, Know this for certain, assuredly, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Messiah. Now you all have good minds. And I'd love to spend the next hour or so, for those of you who as yet are unconvinced, are wavering on the edge, that the intellectual evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is absolutely overwhelming. Let me mention this one piece of evidence that you know about his crucifixion. Outside of his dying on the cross, crucified, and then rising again on the third day alive, outside of that resurrection, you would not know about his execution on the cross. He would be lost in the annals of history. His teachings and his miracles and all that he did while living here would be lost. Those who originally wrote them were convinced he was alive. Therefore, all that he said was credible. All that he did was the real deal of our salvation. And they went out in the power of God's Spirit in them and preached it boldly. And saying you can be sure of this. And he's pointing out the people who participated in his execution just weeks before. Jesus is alive. Giving credibility to all that he promised. The battle for the mind rages on. Settle that issue in your own mind. Know assuredly, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that Jesus Christ is Lord and Messiah, and your Savior. The people give an emotional response in the first place. Look at verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? They were cut to the heart. They were shamed. 
they felt the force of the condemnation that was upon them, that they had participated in really what was a heinous crime. And let me say this, and I was making notes to myself during the week. The death of Jesus was the darkest, most depressed, most defeated moment in history to all intents and purposes from a human point of view. That God had come in human form, done what Jesus did, made known how powerful and glorious he was, and he was executed like a common criminal, beaten within an inch of his life, impaled upon a cross by way of the execution, and died there, shamed between two other criminals, dealt himself as if he were a tragic, messed up, broken criminal. But because of the resurrection of Jesus, what was the darkest, most depressed, most depraved moment in the history of humanity has become the most powerful exhibition of God's desire and love for you and for me, for the band here, for the people of Pittsburgh and around the world, that he is able to save to the uttermost from the guttermost those who come to him. It's powerful. So the cross, we take our stand beneath. We join ourselves to the crucified Christ and thank him and praise him and adore him for having died for us. And we give him our hearts. But on our way to doing that, you and I have been shamed by our own behaviors, our own sinfulness. When we come to the cross, it's not proud and arrogant. It's broken and shamed. We know what we've done. We know that we have deserted God's ways. We know that we've rebelled against him and gone our own way and done our own thing. So when we are confronted with God's love in Jesus Christ, all we can do in the first place is to know shamefully often with tears of emotion, what it cost Jesus to rescue us. And these first hearers of the gospel were cut to their heart. And they're saying, what shall we do? I mean, what on earth is there to do now? What should we do? To which then Peter addresses their will. Look at verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the promise is for you and your children and for all who are afar off, put in brackets in Pittsburgh, for all whom the Lord our God will call, as he will here this morning. Repent and be baptized. That's an address to the will. 
So intellectually, you may know the truth. Emotionally, you may feel like, my goodness me, what a miserable wretch I am. But neither of those things are enough. When Peter, speaking in the power of the Spirit, addresses them and says, repent, that is a change of mind. The word metanoia is like that metapiece, is like metamorphosis, a change of direction, change of mind, as with metamorphosis from a caterpillar to a butterfly, a transformation. You go from going, running in this direction to heading in the other direction, to repent. It's an address to the will. It's not something you have to feel about, though often, as did they. We're ready to move and change direction because we see ourselves in such a terrible plight with the misery and shame of our sin, what we've done with our lives, the people we've messed up, the way we've even messed up our own lives, the trail of wreckage that we've left behind us. Who wants to live with that mess? But outside of repenting, turning from that mess, we don't come to the cross and cling to the cross and hold on to our past. We don't live where we've lived in the past and thank Jesus for being our Savior. Repentance is turning from everything he died on the cross to pay for and turning to him and surrendering it all to him. And the word baptism is not just a ceremonial rite. It's a public, willful demonstration that you have indeed repented and headed in the other direction and make that public statement that you have done so. We've got so many secret believers, CIA believers, Christians in anonymity, too quiet, too cool, too private to be public about their allegiance to Jesus Christ and their alliance with him and his work in this world. Shame on us for our privacy our modesty, our faked humility to repent and be public in our profession of faith, to openly declare who we are, not just ceremonially, but with our lives day in and day out. Major Booth, William Booth, actually General William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army. I would suspect that nearly every Englishman still knows that name in England. The history of the Salvation Army, which began in England in the 1800s, with its founder, General William Booth, who led bands like this band, probably not as polished as this band, out into the streets of London in a militaristic advance of the gospel. I think it may have been once upon a time the case here in the USA that you would have military bands going through the streets calling for recruits. That's what happened in England, the First World War, the Second World War, and I as a lad growing up there 
in the Second World War saw bands coming down my street in Oxford. Army bands, not Salvation Army, military bands playing and the kids would run alongside, people would walk alongside, they would draw attention to themselves, but what they were doing was re recruiting for the army to go take on Nazi Germany. That's what I witnessed. And these bands originally weren't so much to lead worship, though that's what they did, but to lead an army out onto the streets of London among the poor, the alcoholic, the dispossessed, the homeless, of which there were tens of thousands in England in the wake of the Industrial Revolution. Listen to these words of William Booth. He said, I will tell you the secret. God has had all that there was of me. There have been men with greater brains than I, even with greater opportunities. But from the day I got the poor of London on my heart and caught a vision of what Jesus Christ could do with them and in them, on that day I made up my mind that God should have all of William Booth there was. And if there is anything of power in the Salvation Army, it is because God has had all the adoration of my heart, all the power of my will, and all the influence of my life. Nothing moves without leadership. Nothing moves without sacrifice. He and his wife and his family paid a price. And those who joined him and went out onto the streets and into these, in quotes, dens of iniquity, down dirty alleys, stinking streets, amongst the foulest of the, the society, calling them to Jesus and to join a new army of the faithful. Wonderfully, that spread around the world, going after the least, the last and the lost. The credibility that that gives to the gospel is astounding. That's why Pastor Ed and the work that's going on through him in urban Pittsburgh is so credible. He lives there. He works where he lives. And God is doing great things. What about you? Does God have you, all there is of you? Your ego, your mind, your potential, your life, to get committed to him, to surrender yourself to him, not just to be moved by words and ideas. Satan comes after you to destroy that. Another man who got on the face of Time magazine years later in the 1950s, actually earlier than 2000, but later than his book, Screwtape Letters, was honored about a work where Screwtape, a senior devil, is writing to Wormwood, a junior devil, 
about one of Wormwood's patients who has experienced a second conversion. That is, has come to repentance and faith and a renewal of his energy in love for Jesus Christ. And Screwtape writes to Wormwood some advice on how to deal with this new repentance, new recruit of the gospel. And this is what he writes. It remains to consider how we can retrieve this disaster, speaking from the devil's point of view. The great thing is to prevent his doing anything. As long as he does not convert it into action, it does not matter how much he thinks about this new repentance. Let the little brute wallow in it. Let him, if he has any bents that way, write a book about it. Let him do anything but act. No amount of piety in his imagination and affection in his heart will harm us if we can keep it out of his will. As one of the humans has said, and he quotes G.K. Chesterton, active habits are strengthened by repetition, but passive ones are weakened. The more often he feels without acting, the less he'll ever be able to act. And in the long run, the less he'll be able to feel. That's some of us. We've been moved, whether it's through songs we sing, sermons we hear, testimonies of people whose lives have been changed. As we've read God's word, he's spoken to us. But what has it resulted in? I mean, what are the visible, actual results? What these immediate converts did was not only repent and be baptized, 3,000 of them, but they then devoted themselves, this is verse 42, to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Four things. To the apostles' teaching. We have that in his word now to get into God's word, but they devoted themselves to it. And then to the fellowship, to each other. They were learning God's word, not in isolation, in a library, or with a Bible in their hand, but in the fellowship of believers who could encourage them and cheer them on. And if you are not in such a fellowship, one more time, we're saying get connected. Do something. Get connected with other believers. Don't live in the privacy of your faith, in the privacy of your own home, in the privacy of your own personal intentions. Go public. We gave you the opportunity last week to take a little booklet out. If you haven't given it out yet, some of you were immediately smitten in your conscience. Get it done this week. Do it. Let your faith become public. Let people know where you stand. Share what God has done in your life. Give them that little booklet to read and find out what God can do in their lives. And then it speaks about the breaking of bread. Almost certainly communion. A love feast. 
In other words, an act of worship, gathering around the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the prayers, ongoing, intimate conversation with the Lord. Not just the occasional speech. It's amazing how many prayers I've heard recently sound like speeches to God. Just to call out to him, to speak to him, share your heart with him, plead with him, seek his face and his help. And that's an ongoing relationship. Do something. Get real. Go public. I happen to know that many of you are just regular visitors. You've got in your service sheet right now this blue piece of paper. And it's to sign up for a membership class and really get committed not only to Christ in your heart, but to this family here, this fellowship, and be in that members class. It's about a month off. It's a Sunday afternoon, November 16th. We'll give you lunch first. And then you can spend that time that afternoon going through the teaching by which you can take the step of becoming a member. If you haven't done that, I want you to sign up on this blue sheet and hand it in at the appropriate desk out in the commons area. If you haven't gotten connected in a small group fellowship, you go to Pastor Bob Mason and talk to him about it. We're starting a whole new series. And you can get in on it. Whether you'll be a leader or a host or join somebody else's group or start your own. We want you connected to the fellowship so that Satan just doesn't pick you off. On your own, you are dead meat. You need to have the family know who you are and praying for you and connected to them.